We will spend a few moments in prayer together, reading from Matthew chapter 6, titled The Lord's Prayer in your Bible, and then we'll get on to the sermon. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The sermon text this morning is from book of Esther, chapter 4. Esther, chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. These are the words of God. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. When Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think of yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have, have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Quick prayer together. Father, we're thankful for this beautiful Sunday morning. This is your Day, we are your people. We have arisen to the holy Mount Zion with all the angels and all your people in spirit around the world. We're thankful for our salvation. We're thankful for your word. And now we humbly sit under its authority and we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, that we would be transformed by your word, by the power of spirit, so that we would live faithfully unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. My goal for the Sermon of Esther. Um, it's twofold. Number one, to provide the context of Esther's story, which plays a huge role in understanding what is going on. And number two, it's quite simple, which is simply to be encouraged by the faith of those we see in this book. Esther is one of the best stories ever written. And I would encourage everyone here to uh, make, make yourself your family holiday. Just create something, call it whatever you want. And then read Esther out loud every time you guys celebrate that holiday. You know, it's something Christians ought to get back to doing where they, where they set up really special days of the month or the year. And then you go to God's word and you read the, God's word over your house, over your family. Um, you should do that with the book of Esther. Similar to the book of Ruth, also another great narrative story to read. Once you begin to read Esther, you won't be able to stop. It's not one of those books where you can read two chapters and then put it down. That's how good of a story it is. And so I would encourage you, even this afternoon, it's sunny out, sit outside, get some vitamin D on your face, open Esther, not that you need it, it's just an observation, open Esther and then read the book because you will be greatly encouraged by it. So now here is the context of Esther. We, way back in the beginning, God made a covenant with Adam. And then he made a covenant with Noah, and then Abraham, and then David. And so these are the biblical characters we've been learning about as we travel through the Old Testament. And then he gives David a kingdom. 
Now, Israel sins in that kingdom, then God tears that kingdom apart. That kingdom is torn under King Saul. So now we have Judah and Israel. We've been going through this history almost every single week in the Old Testament. And most of us are familiar with those times in the Bible. Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, even Solomon. We get very familiar, familiar with that history of the Bible, but we are less familiar with Esther's history. Because now, according to biblical terms, we are in what is called the Restoration Covenant. God is doing something new after he destroyed Judah and Israel. He's doing something altogether new in his people, and it's referred to as the covenant of restoration, the time where God is going to restore his people to the glory that they once had. Now, this is a period of history that many of us struggle to understand because largely this history is carried along by prophets that are hard to read. A lot of this history that Esther lives in is portrayed through Ezekiel. And who understands Ezekiel? Not most of us. Okay? The, the, the history of Esther is carried along with men like Ezekiel who sees things in visions and in dreams. So this part of history where God is going to restore his people and raise up his nation again is really difficult because of the books that teach it. So the, the prophets during this time are men like Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Daniel. Okay? Remember, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Revelation, that's the deep, weird trilogy of the Bible. Okay? So you already have two of the weirdest books associated with this time. Those are the prophets who are going to prophesy during this time. And then some of the stories that round out their prophecies are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. All those stories and those prophets fit together to give you a complete story. The story of Esther occurs during the time when Israel has gone back to their homeland by the decree of Cyrus to rebuild the temple and the city walls. Those two things happen under Ezra first and then Nehemiah. And now... When they do go back, they face lots of opposition. And they know they're going to face opposition, as I'm going to get to later, because Ezekiel tells them they're going to face opposition. And one of the stories that Ezekiel prophesies is Esther. So God says, go back and rebuild what was lost. And as you go back, here's what you will encounter. Esther is the unveiling of what they will encounter. And one of the ways that God calls his people to live in this time in history is to live under the authority of the empires of the world. The, uh, Esther is very similar to Daniel. You're going to see similar themes in both books. Now, this idea of living under pagan authority under the world's empires goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Okay? Adam and Eve were created and put in a place called Eden. They lived in the Garden of Eden. That's where they worshipped God. So Eden is the homeland the Garden of Eden is the sanctuary where they worshiped God. Well, they rebelled against God, and we know that story. So what did God do? He cast them out of their home. Where did he send them off to? He sent them off into the world. And then the rest of the story in Genesis unfolds. Well, that's very similar to what's happening in the story of Esther. You have a nation of God's people cast off into exile through the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires. And so there's no temple. There's no sanctuary. There's no homeland. There's no city. Because Ezra and Nehemiah have to go back and rebuild it. So Esther takes place in the time where God has thrust his people out to live under the empires of the world. This is the world that Esther lives in. And now the story of Esther is first prophesied in the prophet, by the prophet Ezekiel, specifically Ezekiel chapters 34 through 39. And I want to just go through that briefly so we understand 
what's happening. Ezekiel, one of the weirdest prophets you will ever read, says in chapter 34 of his prophecy that God himself will be a good shepherd to God's people once again. Right? They're in exile. They're cast off. They've been destroyed. Their temple's been taken down. But God says, here's the promise. Remember, there's always hope and a promise with our God. So he says, it's okay. I'm going to come myself. I'm going to gather all my people again, and I will shepherd you. Now, this is actually fulfilled in Zechariah chapter 3, but that's a different sermon. Then Ezekiel gets to chapter 37, and that's the story of the dry bones in the valley that cannot be raised by anything other than God's spirit. The valley of dry bones, it's called. So God shows Ezekiel a valley of dead bones, and the Lord says, what needs to happen for these people to raise up? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. And that valley of dry bones is God's promise that Israel and Judah, although torn in two and off in exile, will be one people once again. They're going to stand and rise by the power of God's spirit. It is a, is a pouring out of the spirit like Israel had never experienced before. That's what Ezekiel says is going to happen. And when the spirit comes upon the people, they will return to the land and rebuild the temple. Again, Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, staying in Ezekiel, he says then in chapter 39 that when they go back, they will experience opposition and they will be attacked from people from all corners of the world. They will be attacked by all the nations, but they will overcome in victory. The nations will come against Israel while they are attempting to rebuild. And in Ezekiel 39, Ezekiel calls these people Gog and Magog, two names that you may know or may bring up some ideas of the book of Revelation. They are also referenced in the book of Revelation. Now, the man who leads this revolt against the Jews the attack upon the Jews that, is, that uh, Ezekiel said would happen is named Haman. His name is Haman the Agagite. And he leads people from all over the world because they live under an empire with a king who reigns over 127 provinces. So Esther gives us this idea that there is this king, his title is Ahasuerus. That's not his name. That's his title. It means big man, big daddy, you know guy over everything, and he reigns over 127 provinces of the world from India to Ethiopia. All of the known world is governed by this king, and this is when this attack happens on God's people during this time in history. So that's the historical setting. Now, let's consider what God is doing in this story. The main characters in the story are Ahasuerus, who is, maybe, his name is probably Xerxes, Ahasuerus is his title, and he is the king of the Persians, and he reigns over the whole known world, all the way from India to Ethiopia. Esther, a Hebrew girl, um, uh, there's also a man named Mordecai. By the way, Esther is her Persian name. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Mordecai is a Hebrew man who is taking care of Esther, not her father. Uh, Esther is an orphan of some sorts, and um, Mordecai would be the uncle, uh, like her great uncle. Haman, the Agagite, he comes from the line of the Amalekites, the people who King Saul refused to kill way back in the Old Testament. So we have a traditional enemy, and then we have God's people. Lots of the stories in the Bible shape up in this way. Good guys, bad guys. Remember, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman, there's going to be a promise that comes through this woman to restore the world. That's the Messiah. And the seed of the serpent, their entire mission from the beginning of the Bible is to kill everything in their path. That's what they want. They want to kill everything in their path. It's so bad at one point they get Israel to even sacrifice their own children by burning them at the altar. 
right? That's the tension that you see in the book, and that's the tension uh, in the Bible, and that's the tension in the book of Esther. Now, this is a classic story of good and evil. After Ezra is sent back to rebuild the temple, the Israelites begin to rebuild their homes, and there is a growing population of Israelites who are putting down roots back into a land where multiple nations live. I mean, we think America is a melting pot. This is very similar. People from all over the world live in this one place. You have multiple gods, multiple languages, multiple people. But they're not well respected. They're a conquered people. They have no king. They have no god. They have no temple. They don't have really anything for themselves. They exist within the empires of the world. But at the same time, God has already told them, do not fear because I will fight for you. Now, church, it's also during this time where we first hear God call himself the Lord of hosts. You're familiar with that title of God? And that title doesn't show up until God's people begin to go back into the promised land. Why does God refer to himself as the Lord of hosts? Well, because that means Lord of armies. And Israel doesn't have an army anymore. There's no sword. There's no, there's no mighty men. There's nobody fighting for them. So Israel says, you want us to go back into the land that we were just kicked out of. We have no army. We have no commander. We have no king. We have no money. And the Lord says, yes, I do. And I, the Lord of hosts, will be with you. And then continually throughout the Bible, God says, I'm going to go before you, and I'm going to be the one who fights for you. So as you go into the land, just have faith. I will be there and I will fight for you. Esther is a story very similar to Daniel in that way. Esther is going to be forced to stand tall in the face of those who hate her. And if she does stand tall, she will save an entire nation. Daniel stood tall, and he objected to Nebuchadnezzar when it was commanded that he do not pray with his window open. His three friends stood tall when they did not bow to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. That was last week's sermon. So again, we have another story about God's people living under the empires of the world and what's the main objective that God wants from them. The number one thing that he wants, if you read these stories, is this. Just tell people who you are. That's what God demands. Yes, they're supposed to rebuild a temple. Yes, they're supposed to rebuild the city walls. But if you look at the rebuilding of the temple, the second temple, there's not a whole lot of instruction or direction given to them. The first temple was built in 1 Kings 6. And you get pages and pages of detail. When you get to that, your Bible reading challenge, just buckle up. There's a lot of details. And all of you are going to love it so much that you're never going to skip any of the reading. I know that. But then they go back and rebuild the second temple. And what you think is, okay, what do we do now? Like, is there more instruction to this? But God doesn't focus on it. Now, it is important. The temple is absolutely important. But what God focuses on is rebuilding a people. That's actually what Nehemiah was called to. Yes, the city walls were important to keep his people safe. But the whole time Nehemiah goes back to rebuild a city, he's actually getting his people together in groups and leading them to live as Christians, to live as Old Testament Christians. And so the number one thing that God wants for his people during Daniel's day and Esther's day and Ezra's day and Nehemiah's day, yes, is to have a physical presence in the land, but over and over again he simply says, just tell them who you are. And that's the tension in Esther. Do I reveal that I'm a Jew or do I not? So that's what we're going to see here in just a minute. She will be faced with a decision. Make yourself known to the king as a Hebrew woman or hide her true identity. 
If she makes herself known, she could be killed. But if she reveals herself, the king might find favor, and she will save her people from Haman and his decree to kill all the Jews. All right, so let me give you an outline of the story. Please go home and read it. All of you said yes and amen. You're going to read it this afternoon with the sun on your face. It's going to be great. The story goes like this. Ahasuerus is reigning over the whole known world. We've already covered this. From Ethiopia to India. And he's hosting a big party. The details of that party are in chapter one. It's going to blow your mind. You thought you were good at hosting parties? This guy's really good, right? He even gives you the details of the couches and all the splendor. I mean, this is one of the biggest parties thrown in all the world. And he's throwing it to let people know that he's amazing. He's giving it for his governors and all of his his leaders. It's a really cool thing that's going on. And they're going to party for like 180 days. I'm not sure what their description of party is, but they're going to do this thing for 180 days. Now, on the seventh day of this party, seven is an interesting number, he requests that his queen, her name is Vashti, come before the party and present herself. Now, you're going to hear a lot of liberal scholars say, oh, that was so wrong of the king. I was like, all he wanted to do was introduce his wife because she was beautiful and she's the queen. So he just asked that she be present. Nothing else weird was going on. I don't see any of that in the text. But Vashti refuses, maybe because she doesn't like the guy. I don't know. But she refuses, and Hezuerus gets really upset. And he's like, all right, you're done. I need a new queen. So then what he does is he sends letters to all these 127 provinces, and he says, send all your best women. Send, send a, a representative for each area, and I need to pick a new queen. Now, Esther is chosen as this next queen. She is beautiful, and, uh, but at the request of her guardian, Mordecai, she does not reveal who she is in the moment. Now, this is where Mordecai's character, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. He doesn't want her to reveal herself. I think as the reader, we're supposed to think, yeah, you are. You're supposed to tell him who you are, but Mordecai tells her, to stop. So it's either very wise and holy deception or it's stupidity. But we don't really know. But God, God takes everything that we mess up with and he makes it beautiful. And we're about to see what happens. So Mordecai says, look, you're going to go into the palace. Don't tell him who you are. That's not going to be good for us. So she does withhold her identity as a Hebrew woman. So Esther catches the eye of the king. He makes her queen. Now, Mordecai at the same time is also a man of influence. He was probably from a royal family when Israel was conquered. He's taken to the kingdom, and he's kind of in close with the king. He's got some authority. He's got some influence. And one day, Mordecai is at the king's gate, and he overhears two guys talking about their assassination attempt on Ahasuerus. Mordecai hears this, and he says, Esther, I have some news for you. You need to tell Ahasuerus that they're going to kill him. And so Mordecai tells Esther. Esther goes to the king and says, hey, in the name of Mordecai, here's what's about to go down. They do some investigation. And it's true. All right? So it's true. So Esther and Mordecai save Ahasuerus' life. Now, the story kind of takes a pause. And well, let me, let me tell you this. That's written down in a book. The events of Mordecai are written down in a book so the king can remember them. He actually calls them the Chronicles of the Persians, much like the Jews have the Chronicles in our Bible. So they write it down as something to remember. All right, this guy, Mordecai, saved me, and I'm going to write this down, and we'll maybe throw him a festival one day. Now the story takes a pause, and we get to meet a new character. His name is Haman, the Agagite, which, by the way, the Gog and Magog, Agagite, you can see the connection. Haman, the Agagite, is introduced into the story, and Haman, Haman, maybe, is also promoted to a top position within the kingdom. All the servants and all who are in the king's gate bowed to this man. He's the guy. He's not Mordecai. 
He's a little higher than Mordecai. He is the guy, and everyone serves Haman. He's like the Joseph of Egypt. He's got authority right under Ahasuerus, all right? Now, Haman hears about this. He, he hears that he gets promoted, and he wants Mordecai to bow like everybody else. So Haman shows up. Haman and Haman, I'm going to go back and forth. Haman shows up, and he says, hey, I'm the guy. When I show up, everyone bow. Everyone shows homage to Haman, except for one. It's a familiar story, isn't it? Mordecai doesn't bow. He doesn't bow like everybody else does. And this does not make Haman happy. So this is what Esther chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 say. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, which just means he's weak. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This goes back to some wickedness in Genesis. And that guy who says, yeah, you know what? If Cain's vengeance was sevenfold, mine's 77-fold. If someone slaps me, I return with a gun. Haman does not, Mordecai doesn't bow before Haman. He says, you know what? I'm not going to just get that guy. I'm going to get every single guy related to him. I'm going to get every single man, woman, and child. And this is what happens in the book. So he goes to the king because Haman's got some pull. And he says, hey, king, there's some people in here who aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. If I give you 10,000 talents of silver, can I make a law that these people need to be extinguished? I'm going to give you 10,000 talents of silver. I'm going to put it in your treasury. But with that 10,000, I get to write the law. And Hazuera says, yeah, go ahead. So what is the law that Haman writes? Haman writes a law that basically says any person at any time can see a Jew, man, woman, or child, kill that person and take anything they want. Open season on God's people under the empire's of the world. So this law is made in chapter 3, verse 10, it says, so the king took his signet ring from his hand. That ring would have been a display of power to Haman. He gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, 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 the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, do them whatever seems good to you. This is not good. This is a bad day for God's people. So Haman gets a signet ring, and he tells everyone in the kingdom that he's the guy, and now all, he writes a decree on a piece of paper, and it says that this decree went out to all 127 provinces. No one's left out. This is the law of the land. You see a Hebrew, kill him. Man, woman, or child. Take their home, all of their assets, and they are now yours. Now, if you're living under an empire like that, and you know three of your neighbors, you can kill them with no repercussion, and they got nice stuff, that's not going to stop you from killing them. This is open season. You can take anything you want from your neighbor and the cops will never show up at your door. You can do anything you want with their family and there will be no repercussions. There can't be because it's the law. It continues. Then the king, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and the governors over all the provinces and all the officials of all the peoples and every province and its own script and every people in its own language. This was not a lazy edict. We are, we are covering all of our bases. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's ring. The couriers went out and delivered all of those letters. Now this is devastating news to Mordecai. And his response is to tear his clothes, 
which is a sign of mourning, cover himself in ash, and he sits at the king's gate as someone who is all essentially has died. That, that's what he's trying to tell everyone around him. We are dead. Ashes on my head, a torn clothes, everything is bad. Now Esther sees him, and she's sad. She sees him in anguish and wonders what is happening because she hasn't heard of this yet. And then this is when Mordecai gives her the details. But then he tells her this. Don't tell him who you are because they're going to come after you as well. And you're the queen now. You're the queen. So just hold on and conceal your identity. So then Esther replies, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Now here's what Mordecai asks. Esther, I need you to go to the king. I need you to see if you can undo this. But Esther says, look, as a queen, I can't even go in. You're supposed to be called. If the king doesn't call, you don't go. And if you show up when you're not called, you're dead. But there's one thing that will stop him from killing you. He takes a little golden scepter and he reaches out and touches you. When that happens, you get to speak. Your life is spared. So Esther says, I'm the queen, but I can't go in and reverse this thing. Not unless he calls me. And that's when Mordecai says, I think this is what you were born for. I think this is what God has you here for. And that's the beautiful line from, um, from Esther. If I perish, I perish. My life's in God's hands. I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to worship Yahweh alone. I'm going to stand up for my people. And if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. It is a wonderful display of strength, beauty, grace, and everything women ought to aspire to be. If I die, I die. And who knows? Maybe I was born for such a time as this. So Esther finds her courage. She is determined to approach the king, but she's wise in her determination because she says, all right, Mordecai, I'll do this, but for three days you can't eat, you can't drink, you got to fast and you have to pray. All of the Jews get the word out. I'm going to do it too, and you guys do it, which is interesting because for three days, Esther is contemplating her death, but at the end of three days... She doesn't die. She's given life. So she goes into the king. He lets her speak. And she says, king, and she's beautiful, king, I have an idea. I want to throw a banquet. That's what I'm here for. He doesn't say, hey, save the Jews. Haman's a bad guy. She says, I want to throw a banquet. Okay. Who's coming to the banquet? Just you and Haman. You and Haman. That's it. You and your favorite guy. Can I throw you a party? Absolutely. Throw me a party. So that's what she does. Now, this next part is where the story breaks open. Because Haman is also in the picture now, and he sees Mordecai in ashes and sackcloth, and he's really upset that this Jew is mourning it. So what does he do? He's like, you know what? I'm invited to a party. The king invited me. Esther's going to throw. It's going to be amazing. But I'm sick of walking by this king's gate, watching that guy cry all the time. The Bible actually says, Haman pretty much has everything at his disposal. He's got everything he's ever wants, and now he's invited to the inner court of the king, but he cannot go to sleep because Haman is there. So what does he do? He builds a gallows in his backyard. He's going to hang Mordecai in those gallows. He says, my life is nothing unless that guy dies. It's a good reminder, church, by the way, the, the world is not neutral. There is no neutrality that is a myth. The people who hate God love death. That's what the proverb says. So even though Haman has everything he could ever want, he can't live by seeing that Jew near the king. So I'm going to put him and I'm going to hang him. So that's going on at the same time Esther is preparing her party. 
Now, I want to mention something too because the, when Esther goes in and throws this party, the king says, wow, this is great. Esther, anything you want, you can have. Now, she's working her way into the king's inner court so she can say, save my people. And she's doing this methodically. She's very wise with her approach, but she is bold, faithful, and strong. She's very upfront, but she's very wise with her words. She throws this party, and he says, this is such a delight. You're such a beautiful woman. You're a great queen, way better than Vashti. She wouldn't even come out of her bedroom, right? This is the best decision I ever made. What do you want? I'll give you half of my kingdom. And I want you to, I want to move forward. This is a parenthesis in the sermon, but there's so many connections to this story in the New Testament, it'll blow your mind. Because in Mark 6, there is a man who throws a party. His name is Herod. He's a king. And he has already taken his brother's wife. And the daughter of that wife dances for Herod. And Herod says, oh, I love this so much. What do you want? I'll give you even half of my kingdom. Now, what has gone wrong in Israel's history? That it's the bad guy in the Old Testament standing up for Israel, but it's the good guy in the New Testament not willing to kill Israel. Because you know what the daughter says? I just want John the the Baptist's head on a platter. I want you to behead God's prophet. So as you journey through the Bible, this is a parenthesis, I'm not going to preach on this. As you journey through the Bible, what you actually see is Israel in the New Testament acting like the nations. So now when you hear and read Jesus' words to them, you need to read them in that light. They have become like all the other nations. And the Israel, Israel's kings in the New Testament act like the enemies of God in the Old Testament. And that's not a coincidence. So here's Esther's reply. I can have anything I want, anything you want, Esther. Here we go. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for a wish and my people for a request. For we have been sold. I love that language. They were sold 10,000 pieces of silver, just like Judas sold Jesus 30 pieces of silver. They were sold. Their life was sold. The king bought their life for 10,000 pieces of silver. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. And King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who dared to do this? Not a great day for Haman about to come up, all right? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, and rightly so. And the king rose in the wrath from wine drinking and went into the palace garden. Probably not a great, you know, not a great time to make a king mad when he's been drinking for 180 days, okay? But Haman stayed to beg for the life of Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from his palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence? So you see what happened? I mean, she falls, and now the king is kind of out of his mind, but it's kind of providential. He thinks now Haman's attacking Esther. Now he gets really upset. Will he even salt the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. You know, like one of those black hooded things. It's pretty good. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs and the attendants of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at his house. Let's take him there and hang him on that. So they hanged Haman in the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king 
was abated. That's what we call ironic, right? The guy builds a gallows to hang a, a righteous man, and the unrighteous man gets hanged in his own noose. This is how Esther saved the Jews in the days of Ahasuerus. She was wise, she stood tall, and she made a demand of the king that he reverse everything that Haman had done. After this, after Esther speaks to the king again and requests that just like all the letters went out for everybody to allow to kill the Jews, we send more letters out reversing that very same thing. And this, one more thing. Tell the Jews that they can defend themselves. Tell God's people now that they can defend themselves. And in Esther chapter 9, we learn that the Jews defended themselves against 75,000 people. They had to kill 75,000 pe people. So all these letters go out, and the Jews defend themselves. And this is one of those amazing stories where man rises up against God, but God's people by faith rise up and defend themselves. Haman was hanged in his own gallows, and his ten sons were hanged along with them. And this day, the story says, is so significant that there is a feast of Purim that was created. So every year, the Jews would think about this story, and they'd have a feast to commemorate all that Esther had done for their people. And then the story ends with these words in chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to the king Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Now, when you preach a book of the Bible every Sunday like we've been doing, you have to leave something out. And I wish I could have stayed in the story for another two months, but we have to leave something out. But I just want to show you some contrast of how God works in the world. When you are tempted to lose faith, I want you to see God's hand move, and we see it in the story. Because you got to notice, God is never mentioned in the story. He's never mentioned. There's no direct dialogue from him. This is a story written by a narrator about a situation in Israel's history. God is never mentioned. Yahweh is never mentioned. But that doesn't mean he's not there. It's a good reminder for us that God's sovereign hand is behind every single second of human history. He is altogether sovereign. And that's the beauty of this story. God never shows up and tells people what to do. His people live faithfully, and God blesses their actions, and he shows up for them. So let me, I'm going to do a little bit of compare and contrast, and then we'll end with some application. In chapter 3, king Xerxes, uh, king, the king honors Haman, giving him a seat of honor higher than everybody else. In chapter 10, Mordecai is replacing Haman as the one who is next to the king. In chapter 3, the king took his signet ring and gave it to the wicked man, Haman. In chapter 8, he takes his signet ring and gives it to the righteous man, Mordecai. In chapter 3, the royal secretaries are summoned and all these decrees are written to kill all the Jews. In chapter 8, all the secretaries are summoned again to write all the decree that the Jews can defend themselves. In chapter 3, it was a law that this could happen. In chapter 8, it was a law that it would no longer happen. In chapter 4, there was great mourning of the Jews. Every time a province got this letter that they would be killed, there was feast, uh, fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many of God's people laying in sackcloth and ashes. And then in chapter 8, there was joy, feasting, and celebrating. 
In chapter 6, Haman thinks he's going to be honored, and he designs his own little ceremony. But then later in the chapter, Mordecai is the one who receives the honor, and Haman is hanged. Church, this entire story is one of God's providence, faithfulness, love, and mercy towards his people. Like Psalm 124, which I did not know we were going to sing. So that's how you know your sermon and your music is really God's sovereign control as well. Just like Psalm 124, if it were not for the Lord who intervened, we would have been swallowed up alive. If it were not for the Lord who intervened, we would have been swallowed up alive. Christian, if it were not for the blood of Jesus Christ, your sin was pulling you to the grave. If it were not for God the Father sending God the Son, your sin was your end. If it were not for God's love and faithfulness and mercy towards the sinners of whom he came to seek, you are done, lost. This is a story of God's faithfulness. And then this story is carried along also in the apostles, which I want to mention just a little bit. The apostles have to endure almost the exact same thing in their day. In Acts chapter 5, they are arrested, beaten, and then Peter says, listen, I know you guys want us to stop telling people who we are, but here's the deal. We must obey God rather than men. Acts chapter 5, verse 28. We must obey God rather than men. So what is one of the consistent themes throughout all of history? Beginning, sorry, beginning with the Restoration Covenant into the New Testament and even with you and I today. All we are called to do is stand and tell the world who we are. That's all that God requests of us. Because he's still the Lord of hosts. He's still the Lord of armies. We do not conquer with the sword. We conquer with the word and with song and with spirit. And all God has called his people to ever do is to tell the world around you who you are. Do not hide your identity and I will bless you. Worship me faithfully in the public square and I will bless you. Don't succumb to the Hamans and the Nebuchadnezzars and the images. Don't bow when people tell you to bow if I don't say bow. Just stand. Just stand and be who I have called you to be. So what do we learn from Esther? We, the church, must make our identity known in the world. We must proclaim what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, and then live in accordance with that truth. Esther did not hide her identity forever. She did end up revealing it. And this is the type of faith that the Holy Spirit of God gives to every Christian. You have this type of faith. But some of us just lack the courage. The faith that you've been given is the same faith that Esther has. The Holy Spirit that she had is the same Holy Spirit that you had. But yet for a little courage, the church would be a brighter light the church would be a place where people would look to. A church would be a place where sinners would come and realize that that is where forgiveness is found. Yet, if the church just has a little more courage. Because for generations, we've been bowing and kneeling and taking the commands from Haman. And then we meet a Haman in our day and we think, well, that's just how the world's going to go. Christians lose down here. We're just supposed to die. That's not what the Bible teaches the Bible says that we sing, we pray, we preach, we live, we proclaim, we confess, we work hard, 
We forgive each other's, right? We, we confess sins. We forgive one another of our sins. We build healthy, vibrant, joyful families. We work our jobs with passion. We do things really, really well. We are loving neighbors to our coworkers. We change the world through simple acts of faithfulness. That's the calling of the church. Some of you here are really geared up and ready to change the world, and I'm excited for that. You belong, that you belong you're here. You're in my place. This church is going to change the world. This church, in a few generations, is going to change this entire city's landscape. I have faith that that will happen. But it won't be you becoming a Marvel character. All right? It's not going to happen. Okay? God's not going to send you an armored suit. He's not going to give you wings to fly. Here's what he wants you to do. He wants you to be faithful with what you've been given. He wants you to leave the building like a Christian. And then when your flesh pops up and doesn't want you to be a Christian, he wants you to stop, confess it, repent, be restored, and move on. That's what he wants. And what does he want for your children? He wants your children to grow up in joyful homes. Right? And as we experience on Sunday mornings, joy is loud. Amen? Right? Don't be those parents who are always trying to keep your kids quiet at home. Right? Sometimes we do. I'm very sorry for that. Sometimes we do. And we're like, oh, you're just annoying. Well, they were like, why am I annoying? I'm just happy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. You're just happy. And that's good. Right? You see how a simple act of living faithfully could change the world? What did Esther do? She just told the king who she was. She told the king who she was, and God blessed it. And she saved an entire nation. And this is what God calls us to do today. We will never bow when images are placed before us. Or wicked men tell us to bow. And if we must, we will give our lives, which I don't think we will in the West, and that is a blessing from God. But most Christians could use a couple extra doses of courage. And church, I'm telling you, the Lord of hosts has already gone before you, and he is leading you into battle. Trust him and live faithfully. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for women like Esther, men like Mordecai, Beautiful examples of God-fearing worshipers. They give us such encouragement and joy to follow in their footsteps. We thank you for the way that you used them all those years ago. And now we ask that you would use us, your people, your church, in the exact same way. That we would love our neighbors as ourselves. That we would love God above all things. And we want this so that the world would see the glory of Jesus Christ so that the world would see the beauty of his people, sinners saved by your great grace, and so that the world would come and be baptized and be saved from their sins. Strengthen us as we leave here today, knowing that our flesh will desire to throw us off course. Help us to walk in the Spirit and walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to mature and grow those fruits of the Spirit that you desire to see in your people. Help us to be employees who want to honor everyone around us and work hard with our hands and our minds. Help us to be parents who are patient and loving, who can see the long view ahead of the next generations that follow us. May we live like Christians today so they, our children, will live like Christians tomorrow. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.